I'd like to acknowledge our partners today. <clears throat> the University of Lethbridge provides us support, including the distribution of our notices. And uh, Country Kitchen Catering always provides us a wonderful lunch, no matter how many show up, just a few to many. So our presenters today are Robin and Marion White. We're in for a real treat. Robin and Marion, as you'll probably detect from their accents, were born near London, England, but they've lived in Canada since the 1970s. They're an author-photographer team, and they focus on nature, conservation, and, and related issues. And recently, Robin's really delved into uh, the whole climate change issue, so he's quite, a, a, quite an authority on that as well. They've traveled in 52 countries, and they've worked in Britain, Australia, and Canada. Their photographs are lovely, and they've been widely used in North America, especially in uh, educational publications. Robin is in the enviable position of being retired as a, an award-winning land use planner, most recently with the city of Calgary. And Mary, Marion is a journalist and an editor. Their presentation is based on their book, Wild Alberta at the Crossroads, which won the gold medal in the Independent Publishers' 12th Annual Book Awards in 2008 for Best Regional Nonfiction. Uh, and that award, I believe, they received in Los Angeles. So I really think we're going to have a very enjoyable presentation, and please join me in welcoming Robin and Marion White. Oh, well, thank you very much, Cheryl, and uh, thank you all for coming out this evening, uh, today. Um, our book, Wild Alberta at the Crossroads, aims to promote a, a deeper understanding of our relationship with uh, nature in Alberta, um, all the way from landscapes and plants and animals to, as Cheryl was saying, to climate change. Now, Alberta is at a crossroads, and it's really because of the total lack of vision by our government, and I would argue by uh, the somewhat irresponsible policies which it has at the present time on climate change. But because you've had a number of other speakers on climate change, and I think you've got Andrew Nikifora coming uh, next week who, who will hammer away at the tar sands, uh, so be ready for that. Um, we're not going to get into those subjects um, what, what we're going to do is uh, we're going to focus on uh, just really just on our wild heritage. So that'll be the main focus of today's talk. So with that, um, take it away, Marion. Um, yes, wild Alberta at the crossroads. Um, oh, it's good to see so many people here. Hi. <laughs> Hi from me. Um, Robin and I spent seven years uh, putting this book together. Well, more than that. We spent seven years... Hello. There we are. We spent seven years hiking and canoeing and generally exploring around wild Alberta, uh, learning about it and um, interviewing experts, the biologists and ecologists and snakeologists. <laughs> and... Uh, um, talking to ranchers and so on and farmers and, and uh, to put, you know, that was the field work for this book. 
And then, of course, we, we had to sit down and write the book. This is going down the Athabasca. Now, Alberta's got six natural regions. There are lots of books on the Rockies, the Rockies, the Rockies, but we have five other natural regions, and so we wanted to cover all of them, just um, sampling of them all to show what amazing variety we have here. And in the, uh, you can see on the map uh, the mountains in Mauve and then the pink, the foothills, including right out uh, east of, Le- of the Slave Lake and uh, some outlying areas up here, the Saddle Hills. You've got the prairies, and there's 21 sub-regions in these six regions. Um, the, the parkland coming around the prairies, and then all of this is the boreal forest right down to south of Sundry. <clears throat> the heights of land in the uh, boreal forest are cooler and so on, and this is even subarctic up here. And then in the northeast corner, you have the Canadian Shield coming right to the surface. Um, so... Um, Okay. We go into details in the book on these things. And uh, I'll show you a smorgasbord of the landscapes and the, the wildlife that we have here. This is, uh, of course, the mountains, the Waterton Front, and the balsams. A lot of people don't see those because by the time they come out in May, the people come out in May, the, 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 the plants have already uh, died off. You have Rumsey. This is a parkland. And the grasslands, this is a native grassland, there's not much left of that. And um, those are the, the sweetgrass hills uh, along the U.S. border down in the south there is a backdrop. This is, uh, we rented aeroplanes, this is a bush plane, we looked down on over the boreal forest. I don't think you've ever seen a picture of the boreal forest like that before. And the shield, lovely granite. I like climbing on granite, but this is all horizontal. <laughs> and uh, Alberta has tremendous biodiversity. We're so lucky to live here. We have an Aladdin's cave of jewels. This is, this is the understory, and this gets more and more interesting as you get into the details of nature. And this is a foothills, very lush. So we have 1,500 more species of vascular plants, including gnarled, old, uh, um, nimber pines, some of them 600 years old. We have gorgeous orchids, sweet-scented lilies like the bare grass you see in Waterton. We have carnivorous plants. They eat animals. When Robin and I had seen pitcher plants in Borneo, and we'd seen them in Madagascar, but we, until we did this book, we had no idea that we had them here in Alberta as well. And in the deserty areas, luxurious cactus flowers, just such a surprise where everywhere is so dry, you know. And we have fabulous fungi. These are puffballs puffing, and it took three days to try and make a perfect picture of this. In the first place, it wouldn't puff. <laughs> we have birds over, of about 400 species, including the migrants that come through. This is the gorgeous mountain bluebird, which here isn't found in the mountains. It's in the parkland of Montaigne. Rough grouse, the drummer, whose territorial display in the spring and through the summer, too, is, it sounds like a two-stroke motorbike. Brum, 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 br
he's displaying on a rock, telling everybody he's on territory and, hey girls, I'm available. <laughs> and of course, here's our formidable great horned owl, the provincial, official provincial bird. And I recall watching a mother owl trying to um, train her uh, owlets all in a row on a branch to hunt. And uh, they weren't very cooperative. It takes 10 months to train an owlet to be, become a competent hunter. Then we have our mammals, including um, many tiny critters, but there's a 100 species, but most of them are small. But we have the mighty bison with their gorgeous little chestnut-colored uh, calves, the lynx, the great cat of a, a coniferous forest with their snowshoes, and lively little Richardson's ground squirrels who've now become top dog on the prairies with the bison becoming exterminated from there. And we have reptiles and amphibians, 18 different species, including these red-sided garter snakes. And here they are in a mating ball in, in the parkland west of Edmonton. And um, there's 9,000 of them in this one hibernaculum. Now, they're, they're, they're not very well protected. Their hibernaculum is now protected year-round, but not the habitat they use for feeding all the summer and so on. It's just a crazy system where... Our plants and animals are not well protected. Um, these plants and animals, they're all individuals and they're families, you know. They're just like human families. They're struggling to make a living and raise their kids, you know. Plants and animals alike, you know. They, um, using the environment, their, 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 their economy, as it were, um, the ecosystems they inhabit. The red, the red squirrel, I should go back. There we are. The red squirrel is a case in point. He's, he's active year-round, unlike the ground squirrels that, uh, that hibernate. And uh, we've, Robin and I have watched them for hours building huge um, caches of food to see them through the winter. And th this little fellow, you've seen them eating cones, but have you ever seen pictures of them eating mushrooms before? I don't think so. Um, and he had 30, 30 mushrooms hanging to air dry in the tree above him. Uh, and he was... Um, He's, he's on a meal break at the moment, but mostly he was just gathering them up and putting them in a pile ready to take down to his midden and to store for winter. He's real production line going. They're very methodical and hardworking, the squirrels. Robin and I have spent uh, many weeks watching the trumpeter swans. I'm a member of the Trumpeter Swan Society and um, counting them and so on. And they're, they're the rarest, largest, rarest swan in the world, and they live right here in Alberta. The core flocks in Grand Prairie. The parents have to teach the young. The parents are the white birds at the front, the front here, and the back, chaperoning their, their four grey young on migration. They have to teach them where and how and when to migrate. It's not instinctive. And they have to teach them what to eat and which ponds are safe to grow up on. These little ha cygnets were less than 24 hours old, waited and waited for them to hatch. And uh, I just felt that, you know, I haven't had children, but I have had cygnets, I can tell you. <laughs> and uh, so there's so much knowledge about these birds and, uh, and, and all the species that we just simply don't know. They pass it from their from parents to young, and, and it's in their genetics and so on. There's so much we don't know. I mean, we shouldn't be unraveling it all. In the late fall, the swans... Um, they become icebreakers. They keep the ice open, which helps the other ducks and so on to feed as well, to, for the young to gain strength to, to go on that big migration south for winter, with the winter on their tail. 
His more relationships, plants and animals form a vast web of interrelationships collectively called ecosystems, which make up the biosphere. They're just that thin film of, of, of life that, uh, that makes the, the Earth look so magical from outer space and which is our only life support system. Um, there's, if you lose a species, you're, you're, you're all, the, the ecosystem will change. So, for example, with the yucca plant shown here, it, it's in an, a symbiotic relationship, um, a mutually beneficial relationship with the yucca moth. Here she is inside the flower. And the, the plant depends solely upon that one species of moth for pollination. And the moth depends solely upon that one species of, of flower uh, as an, a, a, a nursery and a food source for its young. So if you lose one species, you lose the other. Now these, hey, go back. Not ready. <laughs> Wolves. Ev um, Everything's connected to everything else. And if you lose a keystone species like the wolf from an ecosystem, it can lead to ecosystem collapse, um, what, what the scientists call a trophic cascade. And this has been observed near Banff. There are studies on that, and, and classically in, the U in, in Yellowstone National Park. And the story goes like this. The, the misguided wildlife management policies um, which was just a reflection of the ignorance of the time, saw wolves as vermin, varmints. And uh, so wolves, the, the, the wardens eradicated them. And we've known better since the, about the 1960s, and yet in Waterton, all 40 wolves uh, in recent times have been illegally killed. Um, but absent the wolf, the elk, which is their main prey, um, become too numerous. And then, then they overgraze the grass, and then you get soil erosion, um, and um, they eat into oblivion the aspens uh, and uh, cottonwood saplings and the willows by the streams which is, um, and the beaver ponds. And uh, so the, the beaver then uh, lose their food source and they stop making new ponds and dams and so on. Um, and so what in turn happens is then the waterfowl um, that, that like those places and the fish and the, the frogs um, and the amphibians then don't have those ponds for home. And, um, and so it goes. And then the weasels and other predators that would prey on those creatures uh, lose their food source, uh, and they die out in that area. And it's bad news, too, for wolves, for um, moose, when the uh, wolves are eliminated, because they dine on the willow, which the elk are then out-competing them for. And... Um, it's bad news for songbirds that like that willow habitat, either on migration or uh, for nesting. This is a yellow warbler would migrate through there. And um, coyotes, the coyote numbers, no longer held in check by wolves, uh, typically eat too many songbird eggs and hatchlings, and then then you lose your songbirds. So you see how it goes right up the trophic chain, and um, these plants and animals will seriously. Uh, declined as a result of the uh, loss of wolves in the parks. Um, and other species go with them, just like a, a vine-draped tree in the tropical forest. When it's felled, it drags down other trees with it. It's just like that. So the, the good news is that we know better now, and the reintroduction of wolves into Yellowstone, for example, in the mid-'90s from, Ca uh, from um, B.C. and Alberta, um, is turning that around. They'd lost 95% of their aspens in the northern part of Yellowstone, 
and now they're coming back. And wolves are now returning to Banff too. Um, Alberta's, Alberta's climate is tough on plants and animals, and now with rapid climate change, it's making life a lot tougher. Uh, isotherms, the lines on the map that uh, link together the um, places that have the same average temperatures, um, those lines are migrating north at the rate of 56 kilometers every decade, and that's very fast. And the only way that um, many species can, can adapt is, is if they move as well. But, um, uh, you know, now we, instead of being uh, a few little towns in an ocean of wilderness, it's the other way around. So, um, now, take the pika, little pika. Uh, he lives in little rock rabbits that inhabit rock piles in our mountains, and uh, they seem to be getting scarcer. And they can't tolerate heat, so they tend to move upslope to avoid it. Um, and there they are stuck on their mountain island, as it were. And if upslope means there's, there's just only snow and ice and no food, they're going to die out or there's no more up to go. We'll just lose them. Uh, and in Ontario, a study was done, and pro probably the same thing's going on in Alberta, where they're showing that um, the breeding habits of red-winged blackbirds uh, seem to have been upset by global warming, and they're leading to a, that led to a 50% decline in the population of red-winged blackbirds. Um, birds and insects can physically move away. Uh, to, to find, you know, to respond to habitat change. I mean, they can, they can fly, but the thing is, where will they go? They're going to bump into all this uh, cultural landscape, industrial landscape with habitats that's not suitable for them. And if they do find other habitat, it's probably already occupied by other blackbirds. <laughs> so, you know, this is the, this is the problem, or, or other species that are, will outcompete them. Um, So that's why it's very important, like initiatives like wildlife corridors and the Y to Y Yellowstone to Yukon project um, uh, go forward, uh, linking up vast areas of wilderness uh, or, and small areas too, linking them all together uh, so that wildlife can move as, as it needs to as, we, as the climate changes. Um, all parks and land use policy should be re now be re rethought on, on this basis. That's in, in the Bow Corridor, which, which is, uh, we need wildlife corridors as well as train and road corridors and so on in there. Climate change doesn't just mean uh, warmer temperature, average temperatures. It also means freak weather, you know, much more uh, severe <coughs> weather events and which wildlife isn't adapted to. And when you think of Katrina, neither are human beings either. Take the monarch butterfly shown here. Um, uh, in the fall, the monarchs, the entire population of monarchs m migrates from across North America uh, down to a tiny little reserve in the mountains, the coniferous forest in the mountains of, of Mexico, El Rosario Sanctuary. And um, we have a f seen a few of them around Lethbridge, the monarchs, but they're mostly ca uh, in eastern Canada. But the whole lot go down to this one little sanctuary, um, 13 little patches of forest. Uh, and in January 2002, there was a freak winter rainstorm, and it wiped out 80% of the population. They exist nowhere else in the world. That was over 250 million butterflies. So they cling to the, the trunks and the branches of the trees at night with their wings shut to keep warm next to each other. 
close together and the sun comes out and they spread their wings the whole place turns to gold it's most magnificent so they're nearly all gone well um, we the fossil record uh, shows that we've had f- uh, five major extinctions in the past 450 million years and uh, each of them wiped out between 50 to 95 percent of all life on earth and we're now in, we're now in the, the sixth great extinction and uh, if we continue with business as usual uh, E.O. Wilson very famous uh, ecologist um, says that we will wipe out half of all the species on earth by the end of this century we're nearly at 2010 now and so we're talking about the lifetime of our children and our children's children and we, we will unravel ecosystems to the extent that half the species will have been gone. So we've better change our behavior and our attitudes and our behavior. So what? Some people just think, you know, this is not important. <laughs> Why should I care? What does this mean to us humans? Well, you can look at nature from an individual point of view and uh, from a, a social viewpoint, societal viewpoint. Wake up, Dave. <laughs> uh, um, as individuals, many of us, you know, enjoy the sheer physicality of going out hiking. Um, this is towards Eiffel Lake, and above Moraine Lake, Banff. And, um, the, but, you know, we love to go out in a beautiful physical wilderness. And, and who would choose... You know, to go hike a landscape like this. This is another Alberta landscape, right? So it's, it's untrammeled nature that we need for our physical health and well-being. And, and untrammeled nature is important also for our intellectual health, so whether it, anything from bird watching. I mean, you know, you use it or lose it with your brain, you know. And um, uh, painting, the, 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 the stimulus, the inspiration of the, of the landscapes. And, uh, and and for our Canadian identity, I mean, we're people of the north, aren't we? You know, the snow and the forests and the, we're the Canucks, you know. This is our de- identity. And, and for our emotional health, uh, we benefit greatly from leaving behind the stress and the angst and ugliness of our daily lives and the cities and everything and allowing the beauty and the, the, just the stillness and the innocence of nature just to wash over us and restore us. Studies show that um, children have become so disconnected from nature now, uh, they're growing up surrounded by concrete and plastic and tarmac, you know, they're so disconnected from nature that they're growing up and suffering from mental disorders and uh, identity, having identity crises. Uh, Richard Louvre wrote an excellent book on the subject, Last Child in the Woods, Saving Our Children from Nature Deficit Disorder, and I recommend it. Reconnecting children to nature proves uh, most beneficial, and it does too for, for traumatized soldiers coming back from Afghanistan. We need, we need it, you know, in more ways, not for other reasons than just the straight economic reasons. From society's viewpoint, um, those people were swan watching, by the way, as children, up at Grand Prairie at the festival when the swans come back every year. Um, You'll hear governments often say, Alberta and federal government saying, we must choose between the economy and the environment. Well, look at this picture. I mean, that is farmers' topsoil blowing away down Highway 2. Is there a distinction between the economy and the environment? You know, uh, this is nonsense, you know. But, um, 
without the functioning ecosystems that support our, our species and our civilizations for, for millennia, we can have no economy and we indeed no civilization. And the second reason is in this downturn, this economic downturn, it's the perfect opportunity to, to retool and retrain for the new green economy. We can have good jobs and a good living and better than now, respecting nature and working within it, in harmony with it. That's going to be the hallmark of the 21st century. And we can talk about that at question time. The fact is we depend for our very survival uh, on what's known as nature's capital uh, and the free services that it provides, a constant flow of vital services so that these things include the soil, we saw it blowing away, and the relatively stable climate that crops need in order to grow. Um, they, you know, if a human being warms up, warms up four degrees, you're dead. And similar thing with crops, you know. It doesn't take many degrees difference and moisture and other factors. The forests, they stabilize the soil, they clean and uh, store the water and they prevent and alleviate the fla uh, floods and droughts by eking that water out slowly through the season so we still have water in summer when the crops need it uh, and when cities need it, you know. Um, our wetlands, those little depressions everywhere, collect the runoff uh, of snowmelt and rain. Instead of it just evaporating and it's gone, it's allowed to slow, slowly seep in, into the ground and recharge our um, groundwater. Farmers that level uh, the wetlands and then discover their wells uh, have gone dry and they're not connecting the dots, you know. <laughs> Consider the... Um, yeah, these habitats, wild habitats, they provide wonderful um, food and shelter for wildlife, including vital creatures like butterflies and the birds that uh, uh, control insects. Uh, you consider the boreal forest. Um, it's the breeding ground for some three billion migratory birds, uh, and they eat billions and trillions of insects. You imagine if you had got a... Uh, you know, a big bill on your, your income tax, you know, for, for insect control when we get all these, this vast service provided free of charge by the birds. So, um, and also the boreal forest is, is the largest store, storage uh, place of, of carbon on earth, but with its, its um, permafrost and its wetlands and its soils and its trees. So if we cut, cut half of that down, it'll turn on us. And do the opposite. So like money in the bank, the natural capital can be sustained indefinitely, providing we live off the interest and not live off the capital, just like managing your own household affairs, you know. And um, it, it, we can preserve the, the habitat of, if we preserve the habitat of large animals like the grizzly bear and uh, that roam widely or the caribou that... Uh, um, next remote, you know, old growth forest, we can preserve our, we're preserving our own life support system at the same time. It isn't us or them. What's good for them is good for us. So how well are we looking after our, uh, our life support system, Wild Alberta? Poorly is the only honest answer. And uh, we like to think of it as pristine, like this picture here, but most of it isn't like that. And despite all that science has taught us about uh, our dependency on the biosphere, um, wild Alberta landscape is still seen by industry and government, and I think perhaps by a lot of most Albertans perhaps, as purely a resource to be exploited and, 
uh, for the short-term gain. And um, with the social and environmental costs all externalized, and um, where is the full cost accounting so sorely needed? You couldn't run your own household like that, you know, just, just counting the money coming in and not counting the expenses. <laughs> We'd soon go bankrupt, you know. And where is the economic diversification we've been promised for years? So it's now become urgent that we, we learn from nature whose very strength lies in diversity. We need to do, you know, take that lesson and do the same with our economy. Habitat loss and fragmentation is pressuring the wildlife. For example, the sage grouse uh, that dance on the decks and the burrowing owls, once common, are now endangered and will be gone in 20 years. We continue disturbing their, their wildlands. And um, the grizzly bear is not, yeah, burrowing owls. Mum and her nine kids there. And the grizzly bear is not secure. It's been in the news recently. They thought we had a thousand, then they thought we had five hundred, and the latest studies are not almost finished. It's always almost finished. Uh, show about three hundred and fifty. Um, at a thousand, an animal is in, you know endangered. And uh, when you get to, if you get down to two hundred and fifty, it's severely critically endangered. You know, um, and yet in 2008, 19 were reported killed by humans, and who knows how many were unreported. So uh, grizzlies should have been designated endangered um, and a recovery plan initiated um, years ago. The, science, the government's own t scientists told them, to recommended they did the government do that, but the government is still dragging its feet. Why? Because if the grizzly is designated endangered or threatened, the government is legally bound to protect its habitat. And industry doesn't want to protect the habitat of wide-ranging species. The mountain caribou is designated as threatened in Alberta and, and is close to extirpation uh, due to habitat loss and fragmentation by human beings. Um, so the government's tactic is it, we don't want to face the real problem, do we? No, no, no. We, we look for scapegoat. Yes, we blame the wolves and shoot them. Uh, but what happens then? You, we know what happens when you remove wolves from the ecosystem. You get too many elk, and then they destroy the forest. So our government's tactic then is shoot the elk. So, you know, so the madness goes. So we'll, soon we'll all be alone in, a, you know, just our forest plantations. So the management of our mountain national parks um, is also clearly driven by business interests. Uh, national parks are not only an icon of Canadian identity, they're virtually the only place where left, you know, in Canada, where the well-being of wildlife is by law the overarching priority. Um, but our parks are in breach of that law, really, you know, in, in effect, because it's not enforced. I mean, the evidence is everywhere. Uh, Banff, the Banff overdevelopment, which should, should never have occurred, um, Trans-Canada twinning, convention centre and ski resort expansions, vast car parks and the needless airports in the parks and totally inadequate funding for uh, ecological research and uh, even for trail maintenance. Um, this is the result of commercial enterprise in the parks that uh, makes use of the resources and doesn't pay a penny for the upkeep. This happens partly because I believe so many Albertans have no deep emotional attachment to nature and so they don't stand up for its protection. And increasingly, it seems to Robin and me that most people go to Alberta's parks for um, 
uh, you know, for downhill ski to mountain bike to um, shop and uh, to shop and shop and dine and sit around in campsites, but not to actually enjoy the natural values of the park. Very few hike, very few hike uh, any distance from the roads. Um, this is only only encourages more development, which further stresses the wildlife. Our laws and regulations protecting the environment are, are badly flawed. Uh, for example, the Federal Species at Risk Act provides protection for animals' nests and den sites, but not for their habitat, um, and only on certain federal lands, so, which adds up to a mere five percent of Alberta. So our federal law covers doesn't cover the other ninety-five percent. Okay. And our plants in Alberta have no legal protection at all. So we can't go on like this. We, we need a change of heart. And uh, these ribbons, the prayer ribbons put there by a native person who, whose peoples have not lost their connection to the, to the earth, which gives them sustenance, that reciprocal bond. And um, we've recovered the hooping crane and the swan from near extinction. We can do that, but so much better not to drive them to near extinction in the first place. These, these, here is a, uh, I have reason for hope because we do have, we have swan stewards like uh, Angel Field here looking after the land for the swans. Wendy Slater at the um, Coaldale Birds of Prey Center raising burrowing owls to, which is helping to bring the numbers back up. And her partner, Colin, who um, the other co-founder, returning, restoring, uh, rehabilitated birds to the wild. Wonderful role models. Um, and the actual wildlife corridors and actual habitat protection for grizzly bears is, is what we need and, and uh, urgently needed. Now is not the time for pessimism. It's the time for Albertans to goad our government to action. Thank you.